Hello, and welcome to Codish, an exploration of the lives of modern developers. Join us as we dive into topics like languages and frameworks, data and event-driven architectures, and individual and team productivity, all tailored to developers and engineering leaders. This episode is part of our Deeply Technical series. Hello, and welcome to the Codish podcast. My name is Craig Ingram. I am a runtime engineer at Heroku, and I'm very happy to be joined today by Josh Ose from uh, the ISRG and Let's Encrypt. Uh, thank you for being here, Josh. Thank you. Nice to be here. Can you go ahead and, and get us started by giving us your background on how you got into tech and, and how you got to where you are today? I started learning to code when I was in high school, enjoyed it, did more of it in college, worked on Linux kernel for a little bit at SGI, then I went to Mozilla for 12 years. I did a lot of work on Firefox during that time, wrote a bunch of code, ended up working in strategy for Mozilla, trying to sort of work on some of the bigger issues with the web. And during that time, around 2012, 2013 is when I started building ISRG or Let's Encrypt. Great. And I'm, I'm terrible for using an acronym but without defining it. Can you tell me what, what the ISRG is? Yeah. So Let's Encrypt is the name of a service. It's not the name of a company. The, the public benefit nonprofit that runs Let's Encrypt is called Internet Security Research Group. And we just say ISRG. So what prompted you, you know, while, while you're doing your work at Mozilla, what prompted you to get started on the ISRG and Let's Encrypt? Yeah, well, I was working in strategy there. One of the things that we were thinking a lot about is how to make HTTPS more ubiquitous. Um, at that time, HTTPS percentage of page loads was something like 35%. So every time you load a page, 35% of the time it would be HTTPS, which is just too low. Um, so we we're looking at how to make that better. And there wasn't too much that could be done on the browser side of things. If servers don't turn it on, the browser can't really do anything. So we looked at why more servers don't turn it on. And it seemed like the answer was that it was very hard to get and manage the SSL or TLS certificates that you need to turn on HTTPS. So we were looking at how to make it easier to get and manage those certificates. And the only solution that we really came up with that, that was viable that would get us to more HTTPS in a relatively quick timeline was to have a new certificate authority that gave away certificates for free all around the globe in a really easy to use way. So that's what we did. That's fantastic. And you know, one of the reasons I'm really excited about, about talking to you and, and talking about Let's Encrypt is, is that it's really been a, a change in making the internet a safer place uh, for, for more people by, you know, having a, a process and, and, and method that's allowed even hobbyist developers for any app they're working on to, you know, start at, with a more, more secure state with, uh, you know, TLS certificates taken care of, not worrying about, you know, self-signed certificates or, or no certificate at all. So that's great. Um, so what was the, the process to, to get started with Let's Encrypt and, and how did, how did it work to get, um, start issuing certificates? It was a, a big learning process for me. When I started, I did not know too much about how one might run or build a CA. I did a lot of research. Being, being a CA is all about being trusted, both in the minds of the internet, you know, the, in the mind of the people on the internet, but also technically. So 
if you want browsers to trust the certificates that you issue, you need browsers and operating systems to add your root certificate. So every CA has at least one root certificate and all the certificates that are issued for websites are issued under that root certificate. So that root's gotta be trusted by all the browsers and the operating systems out there, cell phones, game consoles, desktop computers, everywhere. And it takes a long time to get one of those roots trusted. I think a pretty reasonable estimate is somewhere between six and 10 years, depending on what kind of, what kind of propagation you want, how, how widely you want that root to be trusted. Wow. So if you want to start a CA from scratch, you really have two choices. You can either wait that six to 10 years. And during that whole time, you're going to have to have your root audited and keep it up and running and functional. So that's a long time to, you know, operate a CA without being able to issue certificates that are trusted. So what most new CAs do is they go out and make a deal with an existing certificate authority where the existing certificate authority cross-signs the new certificate authority, meaning they use their root certificate to cryptographically vouch for the new CA. So we didn't want to wait around six to 10 years to be able to start moving more of the web to HTTPS. So we found a great partner in a certificate authority called Identrust, and they cross-signed us. So we became trusted through Identrust in 2015, I believe it was. And then since then, we've been working on getting our own root trusted so that we don't need this cross-sign forever. It's not that we don't enjoy working with Identrust, but we'd like to be a fully independent CA. So we've been working on getting our own root trusted. It's trusted by all the major programs right now, which are Apple, Google, Microsoft, Oracle, and Mozilla. But it takes some time for that trust to propagate through the ecosystem. So for example, you know, a year or two ago, Google started trusting Let's Encrypt in Android directly. But it takes a long time for all Android devices to update to a version of the operating system that trusts us. So, you know, you know we became trusted, for example, in Android 7.1.1 or something like that. But we need to wait till all devices are past that OS checkpoint. And that takes a while. So in the meantime, while people are out there updating their devices over time, we're still trusted by Identrust and therefore trusted in browsers and phones around the world. That's great. What else is going on with Let's Encrypt? What are some other uh, some news uh, from the Let's Encrypt product side? So we're a pretty focused organization. Our goal is to get as many websites to use certificates as possible. So we're, we're not a particularly feature-driven organization. We're not, we're not constantly coming out with new features. We're really just trying to refine things and make it you know, that much easier so that the next round of websites can move to HTTPS. So for us, it's, all, it, it's mostly about refinement and continuing to get certificates to more and more websites. Yeah, we're, we're not a very feature-oriented feature organization. We really focus on making sure that we're as stable as possible that we perform well, that the software ecosystem out in the world that people use to interact with Let's Encrypt works really well. Um, and we prepare for growth. So we serve about 100 and between 160 and 170 million websites today. And, you know, our engineers are spending their time making sure that we're ready to serve 300 million. One feature that I know a lot of people were excited about was the support for, for wildcard certificates from Let's Encrypt. Can you tell me a little bit 
more about that and, and why that, that was an important thing? Yeah, wildcards were an interesting feature internally. So when we started Lots and Crypt, we made a pretty conscious decision not to issue wildcard certificates, and we were not planning to ever issue wildcard certificates at the time. But, you know, over the years, we got a lot of feedback talking to people about what they need and what needs to be done to spread HTTPS even further. And it became clear to us, you know, maybe three years in that we were going to need to offer wildcard certificates if we're going to fit all of the use, use cases that people have and, you know, take HTTPS to the unencrypted part of the web that remains. So for a long time, you know, it wasn't even really on our radar. We just weren't, weren't going to do it until there came a point where we just realized this is something that, you know, some people really do need. And it's not too hard for us to offer it. It's not like a technically difficult thing on our side. It's more, the big question on our side is, is us doing this good for the web ecosystem? Hmm. And the deal with the deal with wildcards that makes them complicated is you end up using the same public-private key pair for a lot of subdomains. So you might have a single domain example.com with a thousand subdomains under it and use a wildcard for it. And a wildcard does make it really easy to manage the certificate for those thousand subdomains. But now you've got a thousand subdomains sharing the same cryptographic keys. So in general, we like to encourage people to use separate certificates for different websites, including subdomains. So that was our hesitance about wildcards is are we going to promote a practice that we don't really want to promote? Are we going to get too many websites sharing the same private keys? But I think there are cases where that really does make sense. And so we decided to go forward with wildcards. And I, I don't think our fears have turned out to be true. It's still pretty common. You know, people do the right thing most of the time. But when people want to use a wildcard, it's there. Yeah, I, I have to wonder if the the changes in how certificates are issued, um, you know, through Let's Encrypt and making it easier makes it the concerns around wildcard certificates can not happen as often because it's easier just to get a certificate for the subdomains to begin with and and not just kind of just start with a wildcard and, and have it cover everything. Yeah, and that's our strategy for everything is make it really easy to do the right thing. So you mentioned, you know, working on refinement and more so than, you know, new product features. Um, one of the things I was reading about was, um, you know, something that might be considered a refinement is is having the Acme protocol become an IETF standard. Yeah. Can you tell me about why that process uh, was started and, and the importance around having it uh, become a, an official standard? Yeah, that was an exciting moment for us. So when we started Let's Encrypt, there were not too many people who knew about the project and we needed to make a protocol quickly and we didn't have you know, the years that it takes to produce its true internet standards. So we built a protocol which we now refer to as Acme V1, that would work well for Let's Encrypt. But it was you know, mainly built by Let's Encrypt people for Let's Encrypt, although in theory it could be used somewhere else. And that's what we needed to do to get up and running. But in principle, really, we really want to operate on open web standards. So not too long after we launched, we started, we started the process in the ITF to get Acme standardized or a new version of Acme standardized. In some ways, it was kind of a pain for us. Like the original Acme wasn't bad enough that we would have thrown it out. It worked quite well. It still works quite well today. 
But this is one of those cases where it's, it's, it's worth doing the work and taking some lumps to make sure you're on a real standard. And it was, it was also a chance to improve things. So there are some things that are, are better in Acme V2. So we decided to replace our original protocol with Acme V2. And like I said, it was a tough decision because we don't want to break compatibility for people, right? Um, many tens of millions of websites were using Let's Encrypt on Acme V1 and still do today. So moving to a whole new protocol is a big deal, right? Um, it's normally not something we would ever do. But being on a standard protocol that many other web stakeholders have had a chance to have input on is just that important to us. So we decided to do it. So I have a background in, in web security and application security and trying to keep up to date with the latest trends and in, in security and threats and things like that. Um, from your perspective, what do you see as you know the future of web security and, and you know other things that we can be doing to make the web safer? So when people ask me, what do I think is, is the biggest weak point on web security today? The, the answer for me is quick and easy and it's BGP. So for people who don't know, BGP or Border Gateway Protocol is essentially the protocol that's used to decide how to route information through the internet. And if you can mess with BGP, you can mess with the way that information is routed through the internet. And BGP is essentially completely not secure. There's no authentication. It, it's a big problem. And it wasn't so bad when people didn't pay attention to BGP, but people are really starting to pay attention and see that it is a very weak ecosystem. And the way I like to think about it is like this. You know, it used to be that everything was not secure on the web. And then we started doing a much better job of securing the application layer. These days, we're doing a much better job of securing the transport layer with TLS. And as we secure the stack from the top down, it pushes attackers further and further down the stack, right? They're looking for the next weak link on down. And BGP is really the weak underbelly of the web. It's where we are starting to push attackers because that's where we have not invested in security. So you'll sometimes see big internet outages as a result of BGP problems, which are either you know innocent misconfigurations or something malicious. And I think we're going to see a lot more of that. And I think there's probably target attacks being carried out with BGP that are just really hard to detect. So it's hard to say how widespread issues with that are. But yeah, my answer is I think we need to do something about the security of BGP next. Very interesting. So. Is BGP hijacking, you know, I, I'm familiar with it where I've seen, uh, you know, a BGP hijacking where, you know, suddenly Facebook traffic is redirected to some other site that it, that it shouldn't be. Is this, is this a concern for a CA um, from a certificate trust standpoint um, around BGP hijacking? Yeah, if you can hijack BGP in the right ways, you can mess with the certificate issuance process. So we're very much paying attention to this. It is difficult and somewhat impractical for most people to pull this off today, but there have been demonstrated attacks on CAs using BGP hijacking. So there's a, a research team from Princeton did a great job demonstrating this and one of the most shocking moments of my time running Let's Encrypt was sitting in a room and watching them pull this off, um, watching them get a certificate from a website they shouldn't be able to get it to by just redirecting traffic around the globe at the flip of a switch. It's terrifying. Luckily, most people are not able to do that. 
but we were really impressed with what we saw. So we teamed up with this team from Princeton to do more research on this and figure out how CAs can mitigate the problem. So we're working on some some exciting mitigations for this. And I think most likely what we're going to end up doing is doing certificate validation from multiple perspectives at the same time. So, in, you know, right now when you validate, you know, we tell you you need to do something on your website in order to get a certificate. You do it and then we check it. And we, we typically check from only one vantage point. We just say, did you put this file in the right place or did you fix this DNS record in the right way? In the future, we're probably going to need to do it from multiple vantage points at the same time so that if you want to try to pull off a BGP hijack attack, you're going to have to pull out, you're going to have to pull off a successful attack on multiple different routes at exactly the same time. And I think that will just make it very impractical. Wow. But those are the kinds of mitigations we're working on. Yeah. If you can, uh, if you're able to do a BGP hijack for, you know, most of the internet, then. That's a uh, that's a much much trickier thing to to prevent, um, and and definitely sounds a lot less practical than what we've seen now. It's worth mentioning a safeguard that's been introduced for the certificate ecosystem in the past years. That's really important, and it's called certificate transparency, or we often just say CT. So certi- certificate transparency is built on certificate transparency logs. So a number of organizations run certificate transparency logs. Um, Google runs them. Some of the other CAs run them. And what happens with certificate transparency logs is that every time a CA issues a certificate, they submit the certificate to these logs, usually very quickly after the certificate was issued, and in, in some cases even before the certificate is issued. I won't get into the details there. The point is certificates get issued. They go into these logs. And these logs are set up so that they can't be tampered with. So you can't modify the history of what was put in the log. They use this algorithm called a miracle tree to make sure that you can't modify a log or that will be detected. So anyway, we've got these logs that keep track of all the certificates that are issued. And those are searchable, they're auditable, things like that. So if somebody does get a certificate that they shouldn't be able to get, at the very least, it's going to become public relatively quickly. Because um, it will be it will be in these logs, and if it's not in these logs, then the certificates aren't trusted. So browsers have started making sure that the certificates they trust are in these logs, so that if somebody does manage to issue a certificate that they shouldn't have issued, they will most likely get caught because it will be in these logs. And if it's not in these logs, the certificate won't be trusted. So certificate transparency is a really important safeguard for the CA ecosystem, and it, it helps with a lot of different potential issues. Now, is this something that um, companies could or should be monitoring to see if, you know, you know, I own, you know, Heroku.com and I see in certificate transparency logs that a certificate was issued when it shouldn't have been? Uh, is that a good safeguard that companies should be doing? Totally. I would definitely recommend that companies, people monitor CT logs and make sure that the certificates being issued for your domain are the certificates that you expect. You know, we sometimes get people emailing us and say, hey, we saw this certificate for our domain from Let's Encrypt, but we don't use Let's Encrypt. And so far, none of these have turned out to be malicious. Usually usually what it is is a learning opportunity for the people running the domain. Um, sometimes they have contracted out uh, some domain, like for an event or something, to another 
provider and that provider uses Let's Encrypt and we say, you know, we point this out to them. Or in some cases, you know, Let's Encrypt certificates are really easy to get and you might not even know that your software is doing it. So you can get certificates for a domain and it just happens basically in the background and it's not something you think about and then you see it in a CT log and you think, yeah, I didn't do that when really you did. So usually it's a really, really usually it's a learning opportunity for the people running these domains. So it's valuable in that way. We have not had a case where somebody has reported a certificate that actually wasn't issued by them. So what are some of the things that you've learned in in the years running Let's Encrypt um, and and being a CA um, that would be helpful to to pass on if somebody else wanted to start a CA or uh, also you know help make the web a better place? I think that the most important perspective for me is that trust means doing a lot, doing the right thing in a lot of different contexts. So for Let's Encrypt to be trusted, it's not just about making sure that we issue certificates correctly. It's about, you know, when, when you're one of the biggest CAs in the world, you're going to make mistakes, for example. And when you do, you need to be forthcoming about them. You need to disclose them quickly. Be really honest with people about what happens there. When you communicate about anything, you want to take that same approach. Be honest. Give people every reason to trust you. So doing the right thing in almost every context is important. It all ties together, right? So whenever we make a decision about anything at Lots Encrypt, we really think about how does this affect how people might trust us. Well, Josh, I want to thank you for your time today. Um, I've really learned a lot uh, about the history of, of Let's Encrypt. Uh, I'm very excited to see the things that come uh, around certificate transparency and, and tackling the next big things of BGP hijacking and uh, excited to hear that, that we're pushing attackers further down the stack and, and making their lives a little bit more difficult. Um, so thank you very much for, for your time and uh, thanks for talking with me. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Codish podcast. Codish is produced by Heroku, the easiest way to deploy, manage, and scale your applications in the cloud. If you'd like to learn more about Codish or any of the Heroku podcasts, please visit heroku.com slash podcasts.